The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. After the service, but let me ask this question. What line of work is God in? Ever thought about that? What vocation is God in? Like, that's a big question. I don't know how to answer that. Any idea? He's in the business of redemption. Might say that he's in the business of reconciliation. And that's our big point today here. Let's listen to this from Romans 5, how this, how this passage answers this question. But God shows his love for us. Now, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God is, beloved, God is in the business of reconciliation. That's clearly stated here, and it is demonstrated in our passage for this morning in Genesis 42. Write that nail down. Write that nail. Write this down. God is in the business of reconciliation. That's the, that's the big theme in this chapter as we continue our series, God Meant It for Good, Seeing God's Hand in All Our Circumstances. And each week we've seen these, uh, these um, uh, themes. We've seen these big ideas in each chapter. And I hope you've been writing it in, in your Bible or in the margins above the, the chapter line, because what you're going to see as we continue this series is you're going to see how God's plan is unfolding in Joseph's life, but also these truths that anchor you. You'll see God's goodness unfold so beautifully as Joseph's story goes on that you won't want to miss it. And these different, these themes, these phrases that I'm having you write in will bring your mind back to that as you watch this story here, this person's life unfold. Joseph's life up to this point has been full of punches and promotions, hasn't it? He's been knocked down and then promoted. And where we're at in our story here now in chapter 41, where it left off, is he's the prime minister of Egypt. He is the second most powerful person in the world, second only to Pharaoh. He led the nation through those seven years of plenty where they stored massive amounts of grain. And now, they are in those years of famine. It's the early years, and where we'll see our story pick up is as uh, people from all over the earth are making the journey to Egypt in search of food. Joseph is the one who is leading this endeavor. He's the one to whom people are coming to. So let's read. Let's go to Genesis 42 now, and let's get the details straight from God's word as we see a bit of... God's redemption. Follow along here as I read Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. It's a pretty serious situation. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. 
who was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. <laughs> your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Underline that, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and he did not listen. That is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. They can turn trembling to one another saying, underline this, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to joke. Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, As a man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. 
Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Father in heaven, um, what a great passage of scripture. We're brought to go deeper in it. And so would you, in your kindness, go deeper into our hearts, transforming us into the likeness of your son. God, you say that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're standing on that edge right now, God. Do your work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Beloved, what we just saw here is that God is beginning the process of reconciliation in this family. As you've been going through the journey, that we've seen God at work in each and every chapter leading to this place because God is in this business of reconciliation. And all the details of, the li- of this life belong to the Lord, right? All of them are at his disposal. He has all kinds of resources. And so it's no surprise to say... It's no surprise to say that in order to accomplish this reconciliation, that God uses problems, specifically the problems of life. And in this case, God is using a massive worldwide famine. We think it's hot right now. It is hotter then. There's no rain. There was no water. There was brutal winds, all that equal, no food. No food across the land. And as the years go by, as the famine continues, people are getting hungry. The kids' cries are starting to become a little louder. Death is knocking at their door. There is a massive problem. Not only is there this famine that's a problem, but as we get into uh, the beginning of, of chapter 42 here, we get some insight into this family. Remember Jacob here, the chapter begins, Jacob is the patriarch. He's the father of Joseph. He's really the main player in this whole uh, series. We call it the life of Joseph, but remember this is actually about Jacob, his father, and all of his grown sons are still living with him. Now these guys are older. They're probably the oldest one, maybe somewhere around 50 50 to 30, the span of these, uh, his 12 sons and his children, and they're all at home. Some of you older folks are saying, uh, not in my house. <laughs> you're 30, you're 40, they've all got their own kids, they all got it, they're out of the house. But very much, they are still in his house. And I love how verse 1 begins. The dad looking at his sons, he says, quit standing around twiddling your thumbs. Why are you looking at each other, right? Why do you look at one another? And every supervisor with a lazy crew and every parent said, amen, right? Why do you stand around looking at each other? Let's get to work. Let's do something. We are about to die. This is a desperate situation. Let's get to work. And then he sends how many brothers? Ten. 
10. He had 12 sons. One is no more. One is Joseph, who we know is back in Egypt, but he doesn't send Benjamin. And by sending these 10 brothers, we learn really two things. One is that Jacob's favoritism still exists. Benjamin doesn't go. Benjamin was uh, the son, the last born son, and more particularly the son of Rachel, who was his favorite wife. Now, Joseph had, or Jacob rather, had multiple wives uh, and multiple sons and children through them. And this, he shows this favoritism to this one favorite wife who has Joseph and Benjamin, which leads to all kinds of family problems. These grown sons are still, this, this still exists. He's still showing it. But second, what it shows us in these 10 sons is that Judah is back. And so just back up with me a little bit. If you're uh, just joining us today in, the, in this story or you've forgotten because it's been multiple weeks, remember that kind of crazy risque chapter back in 38? And it was Judah and his 10 sons and Tamar and all the promiscuity and everything that happened there. Well, those events were happening concurrently to Joseph being imprisoned in Potiphar's house uh, first and then in jail. And so all that where he's having sons and they're growing up and they're dying and, and uh, Tamar is uh, being abused and all those things that are happening are concurrent. And so now... That has happened. Tamar has had those sons, and, and Judah has now come back and is living with his uh, dad and back with the family, because remember, he had departed. And so that just kind of helps us get back into the storyline where we see 38 fitting here. But it's, but it's helpful because this family's got some problems. There's no food, all kinds of messed up marriages, favoritism. But here's the, here's the thing. God is going to use these problems to do something greater. Remember, this is in the storyline of God fulfilling his promise, of God being faithful to the covenant that he made with this family. And so God uses problems. God is using the problems to do something greater. Got problems of your own? I was like, I got 99 problems. Thankfully, famine ain't one of them. Got financial problems? Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're not meeting quotas. Maybe your sales are slow. Maybe there's a mortgage that is killing you. You've got your own family problems, wayward kids, a strained marriage, overbearing parents. You've got physical problems, your own illnesses, your own scary diagnosis, your own this pain that just won't go away. We've all got these problems because we all live in a broken, busted up world. Just read the news this week. How many reminders did we need through our social media feed that we live in a pretty messed up world? And beloved, here's the hope that we have. Here's the hope that we have. That God is in the business of reconciliation. He's even using those problems in our own life and in the lives of those we know to do something greater. And here's where it begins. He uses those problems to get us to recognize our dependence on him to get us to recognize our dependence on him. And you know what? Here's the, here's, here's the thing also, is that that dependence doesn't just hinge on the fact that we live in a broken world. We were dependent. Humanity was dependent upon God even before the fall. Adam and Eve were dependent upon the Lord to walk with him. They needed to know that God exists, that God loves them, that God walked with them. And the very sin that ushered in the fall and the thing that plagues us is this idea that we are independent people, that we are looking for self-sufficiency, 
And we are looking for our own human autonomy. No one can tell me what to do, not even God. And God, in his great kindness, just through our problems, says, nope. You are a needy, created, dependent creature who needs me. And if reconciliation is going to occur, we must, we must recognize this. God is using problems. But look at where he also goes. He uses past experiences. Verse 6 now, uh, these brothers have come to Egypt where Joseph was the governor. God is using these past experiences, taking the problem to orchestrate events, bringing up these past experiences where the brothers come to Egypt and about how many years have passed? About 20 years have gone by. 20 years. Joseph was 17 when his brothers first betrayed him and sold him to the Midianite traders, and now he's about 40. He was 30 when he came into the service of Pharaoh, seven years of famine. We're at the early, so he's just shy of his 40th birthday. Long time has passed. Think he looks a little different? You bet he does. How many of you wish you kind of looked like your 17-year-old self? I'm like, ah, maybe... Others of you are like, I'm still 17. But those 20 years go by, when he was 17, he had those dreams about his brothers. You remember that? Chapter 37? He had those dreams, and that's what didn't go well for him. Just turn back a few pages. Look at uh, 37, verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And where do we find ourselves in chapter 42 now? The fulfillment of that. His brothers have now bowed down before him. They don't recognize him because years have gone by. He's also in his, his uh, Egyptian garb. You know, they, he's probably, well, he's all shaved and all that stuff. And uh, what does he do? He accuses them of espionage. You see that? You're spies. And they have this little back and forth thing. They say to him, oh, we're honest men. That's kind of ironic, right? They say, no, we're not spies. We've never been spies. We might have done some other things. You think he was caught off guard that day? Probably a little bit. Just going about his business, serving the country, selling grain. And here walk these 10 people that he hasn't seen in 20 years that hurt him deeply. Think that would catch you off guard? Think back, 20 years. Some of you are like, I ain't even 20 years old yet. Others are like, that was still in diapers. It's the late 90s, if you're wondering. What what happened 20 years ago? You think you'd be caught off guard of people that you hadn't seen since those days came back into your life? Catch you off guard. I was trying to think through this. What was I doing in 1998? Actually, I I didn't even realize this. It's kind of a commercial break, but 20 years ago this summer was when I put my faith in Christ at a summer camp. So 20 years. It's crazy to think about that. I was just a 13-year-old boy. Yeah, I'm 33, in case you're wondering. I was a 13-year-old boy, and I heard the gospel for the very first time. Put my faith in Christ at summer camp. Pretty cool. Um, and uh, God did a great work. But I was trying to think, who was in my life at those, in those days that uh, would come back? Some of those hooligans that uh, I couldn't even imagine if they showed up here. 
But you know what? Here's the thing. Whether it was two years, 20 years, or 50 years ago, there are people, life events, conversations, mistakes, uh, tragedy, uh, maybe even horrible situations that God in his kindness dredges up. He brings back to the surface so he can begin this work of reconciliation, redemption, of making you more like Christ in your life. Because some of these things, they, they sit in our life like uh, moss growing in stagnant water. Ever been in a pool of water that hasn't had any fresh water come into it? All kinds of disease and bacteria and things grow, and it's like this gray, green scum is a film across the top of it. And then God, in just his kindness, he brings that rain that produces the flood and he flushes out all that stuff so that clean, cool, crisp, life-giving water can flow through your life. God is good at doing that and he dredges up. We don't have to be scared about going there. We don't have to be afraid of doing that. Returning to a place of spiritual health is good because our enemy wants that stuff to kind of sit there and fester. He wants the past, those things, those mistakes. He wants the things that have happened in our life, whether uh, of our own doing or somebody else's. And, and our enemy wants it just to sit there in the form of this layer of green scum across your soul. And God is saying, no, I want to use it for my glory and your good. Because guess what? I'm in the business of reconciliation. I'm in the business of redeeming mankind to myself. And this is for my glory and your good, even in the midst of the pain, even when it catches us off guard. But it doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop here. He, he uses the problems of our life. He uses the past experiences of our life. And last, and for the bulk of the chapter, he uses the pop quizzes of our life. And all the students in here groaned, oh, pop quizzes, Right? None of us like pop quizzes, but did you notice in verse 15 when he says that Joseph is administering these tests? By this you shall be tested. And at first he gives a rough test. A rough, it says he treated them roughly. He accuses them of being spies, of scoping out Egypt for attack. You're looking at the nakedness of the land. You're looking where we're weak. You're looking, you're here so you can go back with your intel and attack this land of Egypt and it's all just ruse. It's a test here because Joseph is trying to discern two things about his brothers. He's first trying to discern, does favoritism still exist? Does favoritism still exist in this family? What do we know the answer there? You bet it does. It still exists. But Joseph doesn't know that. 20 years has gone by. He hasn't heard uh, nothing from his family. This, they are just coming into his life. He is completely caught off guard. And he's wondering, has there been any sort of progress in this area? And second, do they still carry the guilt of what they did to him? Here are these 10 brothers that hurt him deeply, that betrayed him, that hated him the last he saw them, that even wanted to kill him when he last saw them. And now, do they carry any sort of guilt? And as we pointed out here, they reply, you know, they're honest. They reply honestly about their family. And what does Joseph do? He lays it out here, verse 17, and then he throws them into prison for three days. Throws them into prison. Joseph, he fears God, and then he lays out the terms. He says, okay, if one of you aren't going to go, then I'm going to keep one here. I'm going to keep you as a ransom until you return with Benjamin. Here are the terms. You want this stuff? Here's what. I'm going to hold this, brother. And he picks Simeon. 
He sends them back. And in verse 21, what do we see? That their guilt just comes gushing out. The brothers are talking to one another. Do you see that? They're, 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 they're conversing. They really don't know that Joseph can understand them, but he can. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Isn't it so interesting? None of this, at this point, uh, Joseph hasn't been mentioned. They don't know that this is Joseph. And even as they're being tested, this heavy guilt that they've been carrying now for two decades just comes gushing out. Surely this must have been weighing on their soul. They saw the distress of his soul and they... Don't know what to do with it. In verse 22, Reuben, who's the oldest brother, kind of has a big brother moment. Told you so, right? Told you so. And now there's a reckoning for his blood. Interesting that they go their right way. Joseph, he understands their conversation in verse 24. What does he do? Does he harden his heart towards them? Does he have some sort of... uh, revengeful moment. Yes, they're guilty. All right, now's my opportunity to get back at them. What does it say he does in verse 24? He weeps. Weeps. He's sad for them. He has pity upon them. And this leads him to his second test, a kind test. You know, there are different kinds of pop quizzes that teachers give, right? They give those rough ones sometimes. Your students are like, yeah. They give rough pop quizzes to just prove how much you've been slacking. And it's like, hey, yeah, y'all been slacking. Here you go. But then sometimes teachers give kind pop quizzes to help you make up your grades, to help uh, boost your uh, GPA. There's some kind tests. See what he does here? Instead of being harsh with them, He sends them home with the grain and returns their money all hidden in sack, all unexpected, putting it in there. On their way, isn't it interesting? On their way, then one brother finds that he's unnamed. I don't know who, and they're all convicted. And look at verse 28. What happens? At this, their hearts failed them. They're convicted, and it leads them to ask the right question. Look at the question that they ask. What is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? And they get home and they replay the details to dad. They empty their grain and then they find all the money. And then what's so interesting as this chapter ends, in the midst of this quiz, as they go back and they tell dad about what happens, Jacob here we see he's grief stricken, but then he emotionally blackmails his son. See this? He's just blackmailing him. They, they, he's like, you've failed me. He feels hurt, and he's using his hurt to get them to admit this guilt that they both share. Each has played a part. We know it's a super sad, dysfunctional family situation. So much so that even as their dad is blackmailing them of placing all this guilt, heavy guilt, onto his sons, Reuben, the oldest, it leads him to even uh, offer his two sons to be killed. Of course not. That's, that's manipulation. This is blackmail. Thankfully, Jacob rejects the offer, and we get to the end of this chapter, and reconciliation has just begun. It hasn't fully happened, but there's just all kinds of problems that exist in this family. Beloved Joseph was here testing his brothers. 
He's testing his brothers. We know that, yeah, this favoritism still exists. There's still family problems, and they carry heavy guilt, and God was using it. And with this information, then, he uses this to pursue reconciliation that one day, one day would come from. But see, God is in the business of reconciling first us to himself and then to one another. God is, God is doing this all the time. He's testing us. He's, life is full of tests, these situations that catch us off guard. Or say, are you, are you first reconciled to the Lord? And second, are you ready to reconcile to one another? We must have hearts that are ready for this because we never know who, who may show up in your life this afternoon. Who may you get a random uh, text from or a Facebook message from? God may be using it. He may be using it in your life to prepare your heart for reconciliation. And so we want to make this really practical, right? We've seen the story. We know it's messed up. Some of you are identifying with like, yeah, that could be my life. Some of these things are in my life. God is using these same type of things in my life. So how do we reconcile? Well, reconciliation happens first when we fear God. I told you to underline it because this is so important. Verse 18, verse 18, reconciliation begins by, it happens when we fear God. Like I just said, reconciliation is a vertical thing before it's a horizontal thing. We must be right with God first. And he uses those problems, the past experiences of our life, and the pop quizzes that he puts in our life to draw us to himself so that we repent, we recognize our neediness, we hand him our junk, and we receive the forgiveness that is, that is freely offered from him. Is God doing that in your heart even now? Even as we're talking about these things, you're like, I want, I want to know this. I want to be reconciled, and I know that I, I am not reconciled to the Lord. Well, it's easy. God may, God may be bringing it up. He may be putting you here in this church to hear this passage even today so that you might be reconciled to the Lord. We must be reconciled vertically first. This is the message that we have. Reconciled to God, knowing that we've offended him, that we've hurt God, that we've betrayed him. We've thrown him in a pit. We've killed him. We've had murderous thoughts in our heart. We've been his enemies. And even in the midst of that, God says, you can be reconciled. You can be reconciled. Let's be vertically reconciled so that we can extend this horizontal forgiveness. Jesus himself told a, a parable in Matthew 18. I want you to listen uh, as I read this. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's more than like a lifetime of earnings. It's a lot of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. There's no way he could pay this monetary debt. So what was he going to pay with? Not only his life, but the life of every person in his family. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The debt that was unpayable. The debt that you and I had or have with the Lord. He released him. 
forgives him. Verse 28, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Jump change, basically. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had taken what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Beloved, reconciliation happens when we are first reconciled to God and out of the overflow of that we can forgive one another. It's vertical first, and then it is horizontal. So we must fear the Lord. No matter how great that offense, no matter how great the offense that is horizontal, it doesn't even compare. It's so minor compared to the offense that we have vertically. And if we're resistant to forgiving that person that's in your life, if you're resistant to that, then Jesus says, I won't forgive you. And that's a scary place to be. We must forgive one another. Jesus is kind of uncovering here. He's saying, if you don't forgive, if you are unwilling to reconcile with that person, then either you're not a believer because you don't understand the gospel and what, what God did on your behalf, or you've hardened your heart and you've quenched the spirit. Hebrews 3 has great warnings for being in that place. So we fear God. We fear God. That's how reconciliation happens. We recognize our dependence. And second, it happens when we weep with compassion. We fear God and we weep with compassion. Verse 24, this is where it goes. uh, the, The gospel, when we understand what it truly means, when we fear God, it makes us tender. It makes us tender. For apart from grace, we understand that we would be in the same exact situation. The gospel tenderizes. We have compassion on those feeling guilt, not hardening our heart like the wicked servant in Matthew 18, but in compassion with pity like the Lord, and as Joseph demonstrates here for us. It should draw us closer, not apart. It should draw us closer. We weep with compassion, knowing that the gospel, what work that God is doing in our life as he is transforming us, as these situations come up, as he has put us in these prime positions, whether we expect it or not, to deal with uh, problems, to deal with past experiences, to deal with people, to come under these quizzes, God is working through them for his glory and our good to make us more compassionate. In the, in the book, uh, Joseph, it's a little commentary, I've recommended it, uh, the author there, Vody Bauckham, asks four great heart-tenderizing questions as we find ourselves in a place like this. I'm just going to put them on the screen. You can write them down, but I want God's Spirit to just tenderize us a little bit, no matter where you're at, as you're people that have embraced Christ. Hopefully, that vertical reconciliation has happened. 
As you're just maybe wrestling through like a situation or a specific person or my spouse or a friend or a coworker, somebody that is in my present life or yeah, the Lord's just dredging up some of these memories. Here are four heart tenderizing questions. First, do the sins of my past continue to influence my present? You know, beloved, are, those, are, you, are you still defined by those things? Because if you're found in Christ, it's not, it's not defining of you. Are we still, are they like those weights, that baggage that is holding you back from pursuing the Lord and being more Christ-like? Have you been reconciled to the Father through them, forgiven, moving on? Second, have I learned to love one another? We use love a lot. I know it's kind of a cliche term, but truly, genuinely, biblical, sacrificial, selfless love for one another that's carried out in the mess of relationships. See, here's the thing with relationships. They are both a great reward, but they also come with great risk. Because the deeper we go in, the more we love people, the more we uh, make ourselves vulnerable, the more we pour ourselves out, it comes with great risk of being hurt. And that's okay. God has made the bridge of reconciliation to get past to help us work through even when we have been offended. Third, how do I respond when facing a moral dilemma? Here, the brothers had a moral dilemma. They had all this money. They had all this, this stuff. They didn't really know what to do with it. kind of threw them in a tailspin. They're like, ah, oh, we got all our money back, but we got the grain. Should we go back? Should we make the journey? Should we not? How do we respond and there's a moral dilemma before us. When your standards of following the Lord are confronted with the standards of uh, the different standards of the world. How do we respond? Do we just give in? Do we do our own thing? Do we say, no, Lord, I'm going to follow you in integrity? How do we respond? What wins out? Who is the, who gets the last say? And fourth, have those closest to me seen a change? See, these are the questions that we ask that tenderize our heart, that cause us to weep with compassion. As we are growing in the Lord, this, is, this really is born out of the, what I did in my past. Has that influenced me? No, as we're continuing to grow, as we're continuing to become more like Christ, have those closest to me seen a change? And, and here's the thing, is that they, that they should, especially if some time has gone by especially as you've grown closer to the Lord, as you've, uh, you've grown in your desire to follow him. It should be, should be different. And that's okay. It should be noticeable. But reconciliation happens. happens when we're tender, compassionate, and not hardened and self-righteous. This is when it happens. This is what God is doing among us. And last, reconciliation happens by, happens when we return unexpected kindness. I've already mentioned it. We've already gone here. First, uh, we fear God. We have a compassionate heart. But then what does he do? He gives this money back to them. God showed this unexplainable, unwanted kindness to us, his enemies. And then he went to the cross. He went to the cross and he demonstrated that love. We deserve God's wrath poured out on us for eternity and Christ took it for us. Christ returned unexpected, unwanted, undesired kindness 
and paying the ultimate price of giving his own life that we might be reconciled. And here's the thing. When we return unexpected kindness to those that have offended us, there is not a situation in our life when we are more like Christ. You've offended me. You've hurt me deeply. But I'm going to bless those who persecute me. I'm going to return kindness upon you who've offended me. Is God working out reconciliation between you and your spouse? Is God working out these things? Here's the way forward. This is the path ahead today. Matthew 5, 24, it says, go leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. Nothing else, even the worship of God, is more important than this. This is the way forward. This is what we do. We return this unexpected kindness. Who is it this week that you need to reach out to? Who is it this week that you need to reach out to to pursue reconciliation? Who is it? Don't resist it. So let's go to our key verse, verse 28. Here's the question. This is the key. This is the point. This is what God is trying to do in this passage as he's showing us his faithfulness, as his banner of sovereignty over the details of our life is here. As he's shown us great kindness, as his grace is on display, here's the right question, the high note The climax of this chapter is this. What is this that God has done to us? And the answer is he's set the stage for reconciliation. And these uh, brothers' life and this messed up, jacked up family, he has set the stage for reconciliation. As you ask this question where you are unsure of what to do, you ask this question, what is this that God has done to me? What has God done to us? It's this, he's set the stage for reconciliation and God has pressed into that situation at the exact right time, sometimes 20 years later, but he's pressed into it at the right time to accomplish those two things. His glory, that all of this is to the working out his plan to fulfill his promise and our good. He's working this for our good that we might be reconciled to him and to one another. Hard, no doubt. Difficult, painful, no doubt. But right and good. Right and good. God is in the business of reconciliation. This beloved is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. You know, and God is, he's doing his work in our hearts, even right now, by his spirit, through his word. He's doing that. You, can, you just sense it. You know that God is at work. He's transforming us. And so what a better time as God is at work than to even now participate and to respond by taking communion. Because what is it that communion portrays for us? What does it display for us? This very good news of Jesus Christ. It displays the gospel that this man died, his body broken, his blood poured out, that we might be reconciled to God. And so as we respond, as we come here, I'm going to ask the worship team, you can uh, uh, make your way up here. And our ushers are-